You guys can have a seat. Just to give you some insight into how my mind works, I was, during that song, um, <laughs> wondering if it would be inspiring or annoying that if I went throughout my day, if I had like doo-wop singers repeating the things that I was saying. <laughs> and I think the answer is both. I think it would maybe start as like encouraging and then after a while I'd be like, okay, I mean, enough of that. So, <laughs> so anyway, there's my, there's my weird twisted brain when I'm supposed to be worshiping, I'm thinking that stuff. So uh, you're stuck with me for just one more week and, uh, and then Steve comes back from sabbatical so you don't have to deal with that anymore. Um, and, and this whole time that we've been here uh, during Steve's sabbatical, we've been working our way through the stories in the book of Daniel uh, for about a month now. And today we come to probably the most familiar one, uh, Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, I was asking uh, my four-year-old this morning about Daniel, uh, just to kind of like see how our, our teaching is going in the preschool room. And I said, I said, hey, do you know who Daniel is in the Bible? And she said, oh yeah, Daniel, he, he took his stick and hit a rock and God gave him water. And I said, well, that's a really good memory, but that's Moses, not Daniel. Uh, I said, Daniel um, got thrown into it. She's like, oh, the lion's den. I'm like, yeah, there you go, Daniel in the lion's den. So, so that's where we're at this morning. And this week, as I was working on the message, uh, I was reminded of that old preacher joke about the man that was being chased by this roaring, hungry lion uh, through the, the savannah. And he, and he felt the animal's hot breath uh, on his neck, and he knew that his time was short. He knew that he'd be caught any minute. And so he prayed as he ran. He turned to God uh, in his time of need, and he cried out in desperation, uh, Lord, please make this lion a Christian. And a few seconds later, he realized that the lion wasn't chasing him anymore. The lion had given up chasing him. And he looked, when he looked behind him, he saw the, the lion was kneeling and bowing his head and silently moving his lips. And it was obvious that he was praying. And, uh, and so he was very relieved not to be eaten. And, and he decided that he would join the lion in prayer uh, and thank God for this turn of events. And so uh, he went back toward the lion. But when he got close enough, he heard the lion praying, uh, and Lord, bless this food I'm about to receive. <laughs> I guess the moral of that joke is to be careful what you pray for, right? We say that all the time as Christians because uh, things don't always turn out the way that, that I think they should when I pray about them. Uh, I ask God for help with something and the way God helps me isn't exactly the way I was hoping that he would help me. Um, I, I remember uh, that uh, years ago, uh, my, my wife Sarah was struggling through some anxiety and she was having panic attacks and I had never experienced a panic attack and I didn't uh, doubt that they were real. I just, I just didn't have any kind of, you know, bearing for what was happening with her. And I remember that I prayed through that time that God would help me be more understanding uh, of what my wife was going through. And God answered that prayer by letting me experience a panic attack of my own. Um, and, and that was not the answer to prayer I was hoping for in that moment. Um, having a panic attack uh, in, in, at Disney World, no, no less, um, in the hotel, uh, in the bathtub, I thought I was going to have a heart attack and die. And so that wasn't exactly what I was hoping for. But now I understand. I, I do understand uh, in, in small part what she was going through. And I remember a couple years ago, um, I just realized that this happened. You know, sometimes you don't realize that prayer was answered until much later. I realized a couple years ago, um, I had been getting uh, easily frustrated with the people around me. Um, I, I, and, and I remember that I started praying to God for patience. 
Now, I mean, if you've been at this Christian thing for any length of time, you know that that's one of those landmine prayers that you pray, you pray for patience and what's God gonna do to teach you patience. Well, God put a three-year-old in my house and then a pandemic started. And so um, I'm definitely more patient today than I was when I prayed that prayer, but that wasn't exactly what I had in mind when I was asking God to help me with my patience. And, and you know, sometimes we think of prayer like asking uh, the genie from Aladdin to grant our wishes. Um, you know, we've, God has the voice of Robin Williams, right? And uh, we're asking, he says, you never had a friend like me, you know, just tell me what you want. And, and we think of that, like we just tell him what we want. As long as we're really specific, right? We, you can't give the genie any wiggle room because he might grant your wish in a really weird way. But as long as you're really specific with God in what you want, um, he, he'll give you what you ask. But, you know, a prayer is less about getting God to do what I want and it's more about lining myself up with what God wants. And so yes, in prayer, I go to prayer and I ask God for help with things um, and God answers my prayer in, in unusual ways sometimes, but ultimately the entire experience serves to move me closer to God's will rather than moving God. Like, oh yeah, I guess, you know, that might screw up the entire world, but you want it, so I'll give it to you. Um, it's more about moving me closer to God than God closer to me. And so this last story that we're going to look at in the counterculture series uh, in Daniel shows that prayer should be our way of life, not just something that we turn to when we can't figure things out on our own. I think a lot of times prayer, we think of prayer as a last resort, that we, we go through all of the, we, you know, we exhaust all of the different options, all of the different resources we have available, and we get to the end of our rope, and we say, God, I don't know what to do. And that's good. I mean, I'm not suggesting we don't pray in those moments. We should, but the, the story of Daniel shows that prayer should happen much sooner than when you get, find yourself in an emergency. Uh, and so this story is found in Daniel chapter 6. Um, we're going to go through the entire chapter today. We're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to do it like uh, a few pieces at a time. So starting in verse 1 of Daniel 6, uh, it pleased Darius, this is the new king, it pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom uh, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, my, my king Darius li live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human, uh, uh, human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. So Daniel is still in the city of Babylon, uh, the place where he's been uh, the, this entire time, uh, but a new empire is ruling now. Uh, Persia has replaced Babylon uh, after they invaded the city during that banquet at night at the end of chapter 5 that we just went through last week, and Belshazzar, the, the 
the Babylonian serving as the king at the time is dead, uh, and Darius the Mede is in charge of the city now uh, on behalf of the Persian Empire. And even though it's a brand new empire, the story is familiar. Daniel's leadership is so impressive that he is given a high rank in the government. Uh, and not only did he survive the transition, uh, because not everyone did, Belshazzar certainly didn't, uh, not all the government officials survived the empire transition, Daniel did, but not only did he survive, he was appointed to be one of three administrators overseeing these, these satraps, right? And, so, and satrap, that word, it means protector of the kingdom. Uh, and back then, this was a general term for like local government officials uh, that, that oversaw just different areas of, of government in the city. And so uh, they had you know, 120 of those and then three administrators over them and then uh, you know, Darius the Mede over, over the whole thing. And so Daniel, uh, who remember was over 80 years old by this time. Um, I, th I think a lot of times when we think of the Daniel and the lion's den story, we're thinking of like a teenage guy. That's not the case. Um, Daniel's been in Babylon for, for nearly his entire life. Uh, he, in, in you know, chapter one, he showed up when he was like 14, 15 years old. He's been in, in Babylon for uh, 60, 65, 67 years, a long time serving. Uh, and so he's over 80 years old at this time. And, uh, and Daniel is, is made an administrator, overseeing uh, at least a third of the areas of local government in the city. And the text says that he so distinguished himself by his exceptional qualities that Darius uh, intended to promote him even further uh, to manage the entire kingdom. Now, we don't know if that means the entire kingdom in terms of the whole city or if that's an even bigger position in the empire of Persia beyond just the city of Babylon. But at any rate, it's a big deal. Uh, even, even more responsibility than being one of three administrators in the city and this made the other officials jealous. Uh, and so they tried to find a way uh, to accuse Daniel uh, based on his, his job performance uh, or, or his character, but they couldn't. Uh, it said that he was neither corrupt nor negligent. Uh, his character was impeccable and he was a hard worker. There was nothing they could come at him with that, that would tear him down. The only thing that they could think to do was to pit his loyalty to his God against his loyalty to his government. And so that's what they did. That's the scheme they devised. And for the plot to work, two things had to be true. The first thing that had to be true is that Daniel's commitment to God and to practice, practicing his faith had to have been well-known and not hidden. Daniel, Daniel didn't have a secret faith, otherwise th they wouldn't have thought of this plot as a way to tear him down. So Daniel's commitment to God and to practicing his faith must have been well-known, and, and it also it must have been strong enough that these officials were pretty confident that Daniel wouldn't compromise even if he faced death. And so Daniel's faith must have been well known to everyone who, who was around him for any length of time, and it must have been strong enough that they figured this would work. And, and so this is what they did, because Daniel was not ashamed of his faith. He wasn't inclined to hide his faith, even while he served in a government that didn't share his beliefs um, and, and was at times openly hostile toward his beliefs. And so these other officials, they, they manipulate the king because we find out later that this king liked Daniel quite a bit. He, I mean, appointed him to a pretty substantial position after all. And they manipulate the king. They kind of trick him a little bit into passing a, a bad policy. 
Um, and, and they lied to him, we find out. They said that all of these officials, right, uh, and they included administrators, and we know Daniel was one of the administrators, all these officials think this is a good idea. Well, Daniel wasn't consulted. You know, we find out a verse later, you know, that in the part we're about to read that it says Daniel learned about this. So Daniel didn't know. Daniel wasn't consulted. So they lied and got the king uh, to, to go along with this idea. And, uh, and this was a temporary law, so for 30 days. Uh, and basically it set the king up as the only mediator uh, between people and the various gods that they serve. So, I mean, remember the Babylonian Empire, now the Persian Empire, was kind of a melting pot of cultures and faiths and, and idols from all around. And so this, this decree would be, you know, for the next 30 days, focus all your prayers through Darius instead of through, uh, you know, the, the normal priest that you might go to. Uh, pray through, through the king instead of uh, who you normally pray to, right? And, and, and maybe, I don't, we don't know why uh, Darius was into this idea. Um, if I had to guess, he was probably new, you know, new empire trying to consolidate some control and, and, and some power. And so maybe it would be a kind of a test of loyalty, a political test of loyalty to the new government. Maybe these officials were just annoying and he was sick of dealing with them. So he's like, yeah, whatever, that's fine. And, but whatever the reason, he agreed to this decree, uh, banning prayer to anyone but himself for a month. And so we're going to pick the story back up in verse 10, and we're going to keep reading to see Daniel's response to the decree. So in, in Daniel 6, verse 10, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any God or human being except you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. A little condescending with the king here. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of the nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. So Daniel's response to this new law is simple. He doesn't change anything. He goes upstairs and he prays, the way that he always has. And there's no big speech or inner turmoil that's recorded in the story. There's no public protest or appeal to the king. There's just prayer. Three times a day, just as he had done before. And even though he asked God for help 
in his prayer, we, we read that he was praying and asking God for help. The fact that he prayed wasn't especially motivated by his circumstances. We find out that this was his regular habit. So as part of his regular habit of prayer, a circumstance presented itself in his life and he incorporated it into his prayers and asked God for help. But this wasn't like Daniel went for months and months without praying and then this happened to him so he ran to God for help. Daniel regularly prayed. And and he's not openly rebelling by praying. Um, It's not like they passed this law and he decides like, well, I'm going to show them I'll start praying. This is just what he'd always done. Um, he's also not hiding in a closet either. Uh, he went up to his upstairs room with the windows open toward Jerusalem. Obviously, he could be seen uh, when you know, the officials came and, and saw him praying. And look, there's nothing in the Bible that requires us to pray three times per day. Uh, that, that's, not, that's, that's not any kind of specific verse or command of God that says three times a day. There's stuff in the Old Testament that, that talks about like at the morning and then at noontime and at night, but none of those are commandments. This is just, this is Daniel's habit. Daniel didn't have to do this. He wouldn't have been violating a command uh, if, if he had, you know, laid off for a little while. It wouldn't have been that big of a compromise if he decided to, to put his prayer habit on hold for a month you know, under the circumstances, we look at that and think, well, that's probably the rational thing to do. You know, lay off the praying for 30 days isn't that big of an ask, and then, and then you'll be good. Then you save your life. But, but he didn't do that. Daniel refused to abandon his prayer habit, uh, even under the threat of death, because prayer was that important to him. He couldn't go 30 days without communicating with his God. And, and Jesus lived like that too, by the way. Uh, as, as we read through the Gospels, we see that Jesus frequently withdrew from, from important obligations, you know, and healing and speaking and teaching. He would withdraw and carve out time to pray. And when he was facing death, like Daniel did, uh, his accusers found him praying in, in a garden, uh, just like Daniel's accusers found him praying, you know, not openly rebelling against authority, but, but not hiding from it either, just going about his life living it connected to God. Because prayer is our link to God. Prayer keeps us alive spiritually. And time after time in the Bible, prayer is the very thing that God uses to rescue his people. That God acts in response to the prayers of his people is, test- is testified to over and over in Scripture. Um, Even if, like in this story, it's part of the reason that that Daniel is in trouble in the first place, uh, it's also the thing uh, that that serves to deliver him. And so Daniel's example shows that we can't let anything stand in the way of regularly connecting with God in prayer. James chapter 5 says that if anyone's in trouble, we should pray. If anyone's happy, we should pray. If anyone's sick, we should pray and invite the, the leaders of the church to come and lay their hands on them with a special time of prayer. Because James says prayer can make a sick person well. Prayer can bring forgiveness for sins. And then James says this, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. We might substitute the prayer of someone who makes it their habit someone who constantly chooses uh, to, to, to do things the right way, who constantly chooses to be in communication with God, the prayer of someone who has a habit of praying is powerful and effective. 
And Daniel understood the power and the effectiveness of prayer because he made this his regular habit. He didn't let anything get in the way of him connecting with God frequently throughout the day, day after day. Daniel would rather be eaten by lions than to stop praying to God for just 30 days. And that blows me away. Because the world we live in today, and I don't know that it was that much different back then, but the world we live in today, like the A number one thing is preserving my life. Anything that would put me in danger is, is, has to be bad. But Daniel shows Yeah, he didn't want to go dive into the lion's den, but there are things that are more important. And for Daniel, staying connected with God in prayer was more important than the risk of the lion's den. Because his commitment to prayer is is based on his total trust in God. Daniel put everything in God's hands. Daniel's life was in God's hands and he knew it. He saw God come through time after time. I mean, just think through the stories that we've been talking about. His diet in chapter one, God came through for him. His friends got thrown in a furnace, God came through for them. You know, the writing was on the wall and a whole new empire came in and and conquered Babylon. God came through for him and preserved his life uh, and his position and continued to bless him. And so Daniel asks God for help while he's praying, uh, but he doesn't complain about how unfair the law is. He doesn't ask why God did you let something like this happen. He doesn't question God or doubt his power. He doesn't even seem worried about his future. He simply trusts God. He doesn't bow toward Darius. He bows toward Jerusalem with the implication of, of the, that that's where God is, that's where God lives. Because Darius is not the object or the mediator of Daniel's prayers, no matter what the law says. Daniel's prayers go to God, a living God, not a human king. And I always think about Daniel, about this story in Daniel, when I read Philippians 4, where Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So trusting God has gotten Daniel this far, so why stop now? The the other officials set him up to catch him breaking the law. They show up, they see him, they report it to the king. Uh, Darius, obviously like Daniel, uh, and was trying to save him, but he's trapped by the rules of his own government. Uh, we see that the, you know, the, the strongest king in the world at the time was powerless to save Daniel in this situation. Uh, because of the rules of his own government, he has to follow the law that he made. Um, and look, this punishment, it seems to me a lot more like what's known as a trial by ordeal than an execution. Because executions don't typically have time limits where if you can survive long enough, by like running out the clock on, on whatever's happening to you, then you can walk away. The point of an execution is certain death, right? We, you know, it, the, the idea of it is that it will result in death, no questions asked. But this seems like there's the possibility, at least Darius seems to entertain the possibility that Daniel might not die. And so it, it seems more like what's called an ordeal. Um, which doesn't really, we don't really do this anymore, but uh, back in the day, uh, they, they used to do these trials by ordeal, right? Where a, a person was put through a test 
when they were suspected of a crime, but there was some uncertainty as to whether they were guilty. Uh, and, and so they would put them through this test, and if they came through, if they made it through, then everyone would trust that God brought them through, and so God himself was declaring their innocence. Uh, but if they didn't make it through the test, then it's like, oh, well, God thought they were guilty. They didn't make it. You know, problem solved. And, and the most well-known ordeal in the ancient world was the trial by water, where uh, someone who was suspected of a crime was thrown into a river, uh, usually with their arms tied. And if they died, they were guilty. But if they survived, uh, they were declared innocent and set free. And uh, as you might, you know, your, your, your mind might be turning already to, to the idea of the Salem witch trials and the witch trials throughout Europe uh, back just a few hundred years ago, we were using ordeals until just three, two, three hundred years ago uh, in certain instances. And ironically, in, in, you know, the ordeals in the witch trials, we reversed the, the outcome that if they were thrown into the water and they lived, they were a witch, and then we, we would put them to death. If they were thrown into the water and they drowned, they were innocent, but they died anyway. So uh, it, it really wasn't fair. <laughs> it wasn't a fair ordeal because uh, we, were, we really weren't trusting God. We were just trying to, you know, purge people we didn't want from uh, our, our midst. And it was bad, right? And so in the ancient world, they really were trying to trust God with the way they did these ordeals. Uh, now, even when we look at it and we look back and say, well, that's bad. That's not how we should do things. That's just how they did things. And that's, it seems to me that that is what Daniel's facing that Daniel is facing an ordeal uh, where, where the verdict is in God's hands ultimately, that if Daniel lives, he's innocent, but if he dies in the lion's den, he, he's guilty. And we look at it, and, we, and, and Daniel's guilt seems obvious. The law was, you can only pray to the king. They caught Daniel praying. I'm not sure how they knew it wasn't to the king, but I guess they did. And, and so he broke the law. But the king doesn't seem so sure. The king isn't so sure that Daniel's guilty here, and he holds out hope that the God Daniel serves will rescue him. And like I said, the most powerful human being in the story has no power to save Daniel, but he hopes that maybe God does. And before we finish this story, I want to point something out. I want to point out that Daniel was ready to risk everything for the sake of his faith. He was ready to risk everything just to keep praying to God for the next 30 days the way he always had. The story of his three friends of, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace, it shows how the faithful refused to participate in idol worship. When, when we're asked to worship something besides God, the answer is no. But this story shows how the faithful refuse to stop participating in true worship. When faced with the, the risk of death, Daniel says, I can't stop praying. I won't stop praying, whatever the consequences. And together, these stories teach that we have to stand against idol worship and we have to stand for true worship no matter what the cost. And I've heard Christians, I've heard preachers equate Daniel's experience uh, in this story with the law in our country against a teacher offering a prayer in a public school. And it's just not the same. Daniel was not prohibited from praying at a certain location, like in a school or in a government building. Uh, Daniel was forbidden to pray to God at all, even in private. Uh, he wasn't allowed to pray to God. And even then, Daniel doesn't go to war with the government over his rights. Daniel just stays quietly faithful to God. 
Because we don't need government support to function as the people of God. We don't need it any more than Daniel needed government support to continue to be faithful to God uh, in his obedience. I mean, if, we, if you look around the world, even right now, this moment, this very second, there are Christians everywhere in this world who do not have the support of their government to practice their faith, and yet they continue to meet, they continue to worship, they continue to pray, they continue to serve because the risk is worth it. So we don't need government support in order to practice our faith, in order to worship our God. God does not call us specifically to stand up to the government and battle for our rights as Christians. We are not called to that. The example of Daniel, the example of the disciples, the example of Jesus himself is to be prepared to risk everything, even our lives, for our faith. Not our rights. And I think that's an important distinction. We take risks for our faith. We take risks for our God. We don't take those risks for our rights, to, to demand our rights from the government. Daniel heard about the law forbidding prayer to God, and instead of organizing a resistance, he stayed faithful in prayer and he prepared to face whatever consequences might come. And so I look at this example and I think, man, we, we don't fight for our beliefs by, by assaulting and killing people. That's not what Christians do. That's not how we follow God. We don't, fight for our, we don't even fight for our beliefs by slandering people who disagree with us. That's not what Christians do. That's not how we serve our God. We don't, God doesn't give us permission to jump on social media and just hammer people who disagree with us. That's not how to serve God. We fight for our beliefs by suffering, by making sacrifices, and, and even by dying while staying faithful to God the way Jesus did, the way our Savior did, our example in life, because our willingness to, to risk ourselves for God's sake is what gets people's attention. Daniel's willingness to take this risk, he, that he refused to stop praying even for 30 days, that gets our attention. Why would he do that? The culture wants to know, wait, that's craziness. Why would you do that? Just stop praying for 30 days. Save your own life. That's a silly thing to do. And so what Dan Daniel's commitment here gets everyone's attention in a way that, that yelling loudly or, or trying to change the legislation or demanding my rights, that just, that just turns off people's ears. Nobody listens anymore. But when we, take the, we, we make these kinds of stands and make these kinds of sacrifices, it gets people's attention. The, the bridge in one of my favorite songs uh, Let Love Win by a band called Carrollton. The bridge goes like this. What if fighting for our beliefs looks more like surrendering, though that's the hardest thing? And what if standing up for what's right means laying down our pride, even laying down our lives? Daniel trusted God. And so he took the risk of staying faithful in prayer instead of trying to save his own life by opposing an unjust law. It was a bad law. But, but Daniel doesn't expend his energy trying to stand up and oppose the law and change it. He spends his energy praying. And it worked. We're gonna finish the story. It's back in verse 19, Daniel chapter six. 
At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree, here's another decree, that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So even though it seems clear that Daniel broke this law, he comes out of the lion's den without a scratch, and he says that an angel kept the lions from hurting him because he was found innocent in God's sight. Oh, and by the way, Daniel says, also, I've never done anything wrong against you, king. <laughs> and the fact that Daniel survives the ordeal confirms his innocence to the king. And if Daniel is innocent, that means he was falsely accused. He, he was technically guilty of breaking the law, but remember the accusation was that he was disloyal to the king, that he doesn't serve the king well, that he was guilty of you know, re a rebellion against the king. And, and the king says, well, he's, God says no. He, he didn't die in the lion's den. He's innocent. And so the officials who cooked up the whole plot to accuse Daniel end up suffering the fate they designed for him. Remember, it was the officials that suggested the lion's den in the first place, along with their wives and children, which is one of those details that people look at that in the Bible and they're like, oh, I can't, I can't serve a God who would do something like this. But listen, God didn't do that. This is just reporting what happened, reporting history. The king did that. Darius did that, uh, which, by the way, lines up with a Persian custom uh, of executing the entire family so that uh, revenge down the line wasn't a possibility. Uh, this is just what they did. Um, and so, yes, it, it's cruel, but it lines up with the custom. The, the, the Bible, you know, that, it's an off-putting detail for us. We don't like that it happened, but the Bible's just reporting it. Uh, the Bible isn't celebrating it. Uh, the Bible isn't promoting excessive violence at all. Uh, the Bible is just saying this is what the king did. This is what happens in the Persian Empire. Um, and, and really, it, it, it's Proverbs 28.10 in action. It says, whoever leads the upright along an evil path will fall into their own trap, but the blameless will receive a good inheritance. Like, literally, this is, this is exactly what that Proverbs is, is teaching, um, that, that these people who tried to, you know, manipulate the king into, into, you know, offing Daniel so that they could uh, take his place, they end up suffering the fate they wanted for him. 
And, and listen, you, we've all heard people trying to reconcile what happened here that, the, you know, those lions, maybe they weren't hungry or maybe they were like sickly lions or, or, or maybe somebody, you know, the king sent someone to go feed them a whole bunch of food before Daniel went in so that they would leave him alone all night. But the details of the story seem to suggest otherwise. The, the details of the story seem to suggest that these lions were fairly aggressive uh, when, when people were, were dropped into their den. Uh, as we see at, at the end. And so it's a miracle. I just don't see how you deny, how you explain. It's the, the only explanation is God found Daniel innocent, just like Daniel says. And like every story we've seen so far, here again we see that God is in control. Despite the way things look, despite the law that is passed, uh, just, you know, in spite of all things, God, God's in control. There's a lot of parallels in Daniel to the story of Joseph in Genesis, um, trying to live for God in a foreign culture that didn't care about God at all. And at the end of Genesis, when Joseph's brothers beg him to forgive them for the things that they did to him, the, the pretty awful things that they did to him, Joseph says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. See, God is in control in Joseph's life. God is in control in Daniel's life. And God is in control in your life. Things happen to us, and, and they, they might even be targeted. You know, you intended that to harm me. You are out to get me. You stand against me. But God can take those things, and God's intention trumps whatever other intention was in the action. God intended it for good. God took it and repurposed it to do something different, to do something better, something amazing, something we wouldn't have expected. In spite of the fact that the law of the land condemns Daniel to death, God spares his life. Regardless of the fact that the lions are definitely hungry and very aggressive, God doesn't allow them to even scratch Daniel's skin because God is fully in control. Daniel started out all the way back in chapter one as a captive in a, in a huge foreign empire. And he spent time as a student uh, learning the culture of Babylon, uh, as an advisor among many other advisors in, in the government, as the chief advisor uh, to, to a king, he became a local administrator. He spent time as, as the king's personal assistant. Uh, he eventually, he spent a few hours as the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Uh, and now he's, a, he's going to be a, like a prime minister, right? That the king intends to put in charge of everything. The only person that Daniel reports to is going to be the king. So Daniel doesn't just survive in, in, in a hostile culture in spite of his faith, Daniel prospers in a foreign culture because of his faith. And the message is simple. Of the whole book of Daniel, when we stay faithful to God, God takes care of the rest. Now, God takes care of the rest in God's way, not always in the way that I think he should, but if I stay faithful to God, God takes care of the rest because God is in control. And it doesn't mean that we won't through, go through difficult trials or tough circumstances. 
Because the stories in Daniel are filled with pretty terrifying situations and and very difficult choices that that everyone was facing. But by the end of the story, by the end of chapter 6, the king willingly steps aside at the end of the 30-day decree, or maybe before, we don't know. We assume it's got to be at the end of the decree because he makes a, a huge point in talking about how he can't change the law. But he steps aside from making everyone pray to him, and he puts a new decree in place that that Daniel's God is the God, that that he is the true God. He is the the rightful object of people's prayers and worship. He He calls him the living God. This is a living God. Not only does he exist, but he's active in the world. He rescues his people. He shows his power. So living for God in a culture that isn't, it means trusting God's way over the ways of the world. And God's way involves staying connected to him in prayer. It involves submitting to to his will through his word. It involves being ready to, to risk our comfort and our rights and even our lives to stay faithful to him. And ultimately, the the whole book of Daniel, everything we've talked about, comes down to one question. Will you trust that God is in control and live for him no matter what happens? Or will you trust that the forces in the world are in control and live for them instead? Because it really boils down to that. Will you trust that God is in control and live for him no matter what? Or will you doubt that God can handle the situation you're in and instead live uh, the, the way that the world is asking you to live? Let's pray. Father, Prayer is one of those things, it's so easy to, to, to forget, it's so easy to neglect, uh, it's so easy to just go about our lives uh, and live and, and, and go through the ins and outs of our everyday without even thinking uh, to, to, to talk to you. Uh, but Father, this story, Daniel, it, it's so important to him. It's so important to him to stay connected to you in prayer, to, to continually talk to you. And as we look through the Bible, we realize it's so important to, to Jesus as well. Jesus, who is, who is uh, your son, but, but, but more than that, you know, in some mysterious way of the Trinity, that Jesus is God, and yet he continually took the time uh, to, to pray and, and to stay connected to you, Father. And so, uh, Lord, that's, that's my prayer. I pray that, that as we enter into this time of communion, I pray that we do it prayerfully. And I pray that throughout our, our week and, and, and the weeks to come, uh, that we will continually uh, be brought to our knees to pray uh, and rely on you for everything that we need. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen. So we take communion every week uh, at Northwest to focus our attention on the cross um, which is another event where God showed that he was, is in control um, when it looked like the world was going to win. Jesus faced the same threat as Daniel did in the lion's den. Uh, Daniel was framed on a false charge. Jesus was framed by the jealous religious leaders of his day. Uh, and like Daniel, uh, Jesus was arrested while he was praying uh, in, in a, a private place. And Pilate, the leader at the time, worked for his release the way Darius did. But in the end, Daniel and Jesus both were sentenced to die. But the difference is, Daniel emerges without a scratch. Jesus did die. But the final result is the same. Both of them walk away from from a certain death. 
I, I find it interesting, the, an interesting detail in Daniel that they, they covered the lion's den with that, that stone that they rolled in front of it. Did you catch that? And, and it was the same thing for the tomb that Jesus was in. It was covered with this stone. And both of them, the stone rolls away and, and here comes Daniel, not, not killed by the lions. And at, Jesus did die on the cross and yet three days later, the stone rolls away and he's not there because he's alive. And, and because of Jesus, death can't hold us either. So even if we end up in the lion's den and, and, and we, we do get killed and we do die in the lion's den, death isn't final for us because God has rescued us from sin and from death once and for all. And that's what we celebrate when we take communion. So when the trays pass this morning, uh, go ahead and take a set of cups, uh, juices on top, bread's on the bottom, and just hold on to them until we can take communion together. His body given for us and his blood poured out for our sin. Amen. I went a little long this morning because the last time I get to preach on the stage till about Christmas, so had to get it all in. So that's a wrap on our counterculture series in the book of Daniel. So next Sunday, Steve will be back uh, to start a new series called Resurrection People. Uh, so make sure you're here for, for Steve's triumphant return from his sabbatical. Um, and listen, don't forget to register your entry in the pumpkin contest. Grab your tickets for the Halloween event out at the welcome desk uh, out in the foyer this morning. Why don't we sing one last song as we're dismissed today? <laughs>